Welcome here uh, on this long weekend. Glad you guys could join us. Uh, we're continuing our summer series where we've been looking at uh, the fruits of the Spirit, which Paul uh, talks about in Galatians uh, chapter 5, and it's called juice, the key ingredient to healthy relationships. And uh, if you've been around, you kind of know uh, the framework that we're, we've been talking about this in, uh, and that's if you are, have ever been in that place uh, where life has squeezed you, where things haven't gone according to your plan, things haven't happened in the ideal way, your five-year plan didn't work out, uh, you know, that relationship with that family member or spouse or friend, uh, didn't something happen there? What comes out of you? What gets squeezed out of you? And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul refers to a bunch of uh, fruit that, uh, that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of those that follow Jesus. And we're more transformed into Christ's likeness. That is the result of what is squeezed out of us. So we're going to be uh, looking that, at that in a minute. But as Colton mentioned, we were away as, uh, for a couple of days with pastors this past week and then, uh, and then also with all staff uh, later on in the week and just praying and dreaming and, and planning and spending uh, a lot of time doing that. And it was, a great, it was a great time. We also spend a lot of time looking for Colton's wallet. Uh, Colton lost his wallet, uh, and we probably spent uh, a whole evening and then the next morning looking for his wallet, and then, uh, and then he couldn't find it. He canceled all his cards, and I get home, and my son Joel finds his wallet uh, on top of the visor in my car. And uh, so leave, leave it to a child uh, to find what a whole bunch of us adults couldn't find, even though we spent hours looking for it. So, but we had a great time. Uh, we're expectant and excited about what God is uh, is leading us into, and we're looking forward to talking about that and uh, talking about the vision and where we're going a little bit next weekend at our Ascent, uh, Ascent weekend on Friday and Saturday, as Colton uh, mentioned. So looking at Galatians 5, uh, the precursor to the fruits of the Spirit passage, we'll see in, in verse 16, this kind of lays the framework for what Paul's about to say. Uh, he says, so I, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. So again, the context that's happening in the church was that sin was wreaking havoc in, uh, in the relationships of those that were part of the church in Galatia. And so Paul is addressing this, and he's saying, the, what's getting squeezed out of you does not look like Jesus. And if you want to be transformed into Christ's likeness, this is how you do it. And the Holy Spirit and our sinful nature are at war against each other. And we've talked uh, a number of Sundays around the difference between a sinful nature and being inherently sinful, uh, and the word is sarks, which describes anything in our desires or our attitudes that are out of alignment with what God wants in our lives. That's the, that's the Greek word that was originally used in this context, which is different than soma, and soma is, is your body, your physical body. And so Paul isn't saying that you are inherently bad or inherently evil. He's saying that there is a part of us, and we chatted about this last week in our goodness talk, there is a part of us that is out of sync with God's design for our lives. There's an inclination that we all have in our flesh and our attitudes and our behaviors that actually move us away from what God would desire for us. And so Jesus comes through his spirit to transform us to be what he and who he created us to be. And so we see this in uh, verse 17. The Spirit gives us, can you guys say gives us? The Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. 
These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intention. So it's the spirit that gives us the desires, and we see that we are not free to carry out uh, our, our own ability to live the way that God's requiring us to live. And I think if you've been in any type of situation where you've been pressed, where you've been squeezed, you know that this is true, that you do not live up to your potential. That all of us have a potential, and we talked last week about being created in the image of God. We were all made to reflect God into the world, and we don't live up to that potential. We're not free to carry out those good intentions or that ideal. But luckily, God didn't leave us alone. He, he uh, comes to transform us. So in Galatians 5.22, our theme passage for the summer, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. So this morning we're looking at kindness. And I've titled my sermon, Random Acts of Kindness. But I've put a strike through the random. So I don't know if uh, that means I should just call it acts of kindness or random acts of kindness. Uh, but do you guys remember when like random acts of kindness was like a big deal? I, I remember growing up, there was like this whole movement of random acts of kindness. And so the whole idea was to be creatively kind, to go out of your way, out of your normal routine, to be kind to somebody. So maybe you would pay for their gas, or maybe you'd pay for their coffee. Maybe you'd go mow their lawn. Maybe you comb, your, comb their hair, or maybe you'd shave their beard for them. I don't know. I don't know what it means to be kind. Uh, but the idea was to be creatively kind. Make an exception to the way you're normally living. Go out of your way to be kind to somebody. And I think this random, that, that we need to eliminate this random in the phrase random acts of kindness. But I believe that many of us believe in a God that randomly acts kind. It's not his norm. And so we want to break this down this morning. The, the three things we want to talk about is the problem, uh, the image, and the result. And hopefully that will make sense to you uh, by the end of the sermon this morning. The problem. As we've looked at the fruit of the Spirit, I've repeatedly said through the series that we must abide with God if this fruit is going to grow in our lives. We can't try our way into transforming ourselves. You can try harder and try harder to be, to be better, to be more loving, to be more faithful, to be more patient. But at the end of the day, we are inherently out of alignment with those fruit in our lives. And so we can try and change our behavior through trying for a period of time, but often something will come in our lives and squeeze us, and that's not what comes out of us. So we've talked about abiding with God and that this fruit will grow in our lives as we abide with God. And that idea of abiding with God actually comes from John 15. And I want to spend a little bit of time looking at John 15 this morning. John 15 starts this way. He says, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. Who is the grapevine? Jesus. Who is the gardener? God. Are they two different characters or the same person? So when Jesus says in the book of John, I am, and there's seven I am statements in the book of John, it's a reference back into Exodus when God revealed his names to the Israelites, and God reveals his name as I am. And so 
there's the scandalous thing that's happening in the book of John where Jesus is actually, through his I am statement, saying that he is God. So I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. And we run into some problems in our understanding of God. And it shows up in this passage, and I think how often we treat this passage. John 15, verse 2 says, He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more fruit. So we've talked about the need for us to become, uh, to abide with Christ, to become fruitful in our lives and the fruit of the Spirit. And so Jesus introduces this idea in John 15 of pruning. Now, I'm not much of a gardener. Here's a picture of a tree that's outside in my backyard. What, what kind of plant or tree or thing do you think that first tree is that you see in the picture there? Anybody got any guesses? A really big weed? Some twigs? It's actually supposed to be a lilac bush. <laughs> Believe it or not, I planted it three years ago. And uh, every summer, just it's looking worse and worse. I, and so... Uh, so I don't really know what I'm doing, but, but this, a few weeks back, I decided it's time to prune this thing. And so in the next slide, you'll see what it looks like now. I completely, like, cut this thing down into, like, this little tiny bush, and you, you'll see the weeds are gone, all those dead twigs that were sticking out of it were gone. And so why do I do this? Well, I'm told that when you prune uh, a plant, uh, that you actually give it a greater opportunity to grow in a healthy way. And so Jesus is saying here that he prunes, that he brings, circ- he, he brings opportunity, I would say, into our lives to grow fruit. And sometimes, you know, people think that, you know, maybe God causes bad things to happen in your life. And, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that. I, I believe that we, we are sinful people and we're in a sinful world and that stuff happens, but there's nothing that will happen in your, in your life that God cannot use for his purposes. But God, in his word, has stated that for those that love him, He is able to use all things together for the good of those who love him. I would say for those that abide in him, there's no circumstances that is beyond redeemable in your life. In fact, the things that have been most harmful and hurtful to you actually have the potential to prune you to be more fruitful. Not that God brought them into your life, but that God is able in his goodness and his power and his sovereignty to actually bring about good in that situation. So there's a mistake we make. There's a problem that we make that sometimes we, we think that God comes and brings these things into our lives. And, and this shows up in the other phrase in verse 2 here. It says, he cuts off. Can you guys say cuts off? He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more fruit. So the word cuts off is the word iro. Can you guys say iro? So here's the, we talked last week about the palette of meaning in a, in a word, right? That, that there's layers to it. So here's, here's the meaning that this word gets used in in Scripture from 
the most common usage to the, to the least common usage. To lift up or pick up. To lift up figuratively, figuratively, as in lifting up one's eyes or voice. To lift up with the added thought of lifting up in, cor- in order to carry away or to remove. Why do we repeatedly translate or look at this word as cut off? What if we were to take the common usage of this word and apply it to John 15? It would read something like this. That he lifts up the gardener, every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he produces the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. And again, I'm not much of a gardener, but I know that there are times when there's a weak branch uh, that a gardener would bring support to the branch, that would bring strength to the branch by either tying it to another branch that's stronger or putting in some kind of support system for it. What if God is more kind, more patient, more willing to come alongside us in what's going on in our lives than we ever dreamed he would be? What if God's predisposition is not just to cut us off, but to lift us up? I think one of the reasons that this phrase gets translated, he cuts off, is because they're reading verse 6 into verse 2. And so this is what it says in verse 6. If people don't remain in me, they're thrown out like a branch and they wither. People collect the branches and put them on the fire and they are burned. This is a very strong verse, a hard reality. But there's something significant that we have to pay attention to. Uh, John 15:1 begins with Jesus, or God is the gardener, Jesus is the vine. And you will see that the assumption at the beginning of John 15 is that those who are in the vine, the branches that remain in the vine, this is what you can expect for those that remain in the vine, that we have a God that prunes us and lifts us up. And we get to verse 6. And the context is people don't remain in me. The the context is people that choose to disconnect themselves from the source of life, which is God. The result of that is that they will wither. This communicates the idea that life is found in the vine, that the source of all life is in the vine, that those who choose not to be a part of life, this life source, will experience death. Who throws away the branches? Not the gardener. What does it say? People. The gardener in John 15 lifts up struggling branches and prunes branches to be more more fruitful. God's heart is for you to be strengthened and be fruitful and discover your created purpose. That is the heart of God. Being separated from the vine carries in itself the consequences of that decision. Let me say that again. Being separated from the vine carries in it the consequences of that decision to separate yourself from your your life source, which is God. And we point the finger at God and we say, you know, God, you did this. And God's saying, no, I've invited you to remain in me. I've actually made every opportunity for you to participate in my life. 
But if you choose not to remain in me, don't be surprised if you begin to wither and experience death in your life. Some of you this morning have experienced that the results of not remaining in Christ. You've experienced hardships that actually haven't resulted in fruitfulness but has resulted in death and pain and broken relationship and destruction. When we choose to abide, when we choose to follow Jesus and abide with Jesus, God prunes us and lifts us up. He comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. This is this, is this image of the gardener that's happening in John 15. All in order for us to find our created purpose. So I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem in how we understand and perceive God. Where does this problem come from? Well, in the Reformation in the 16th century, there was a deep theology embedded in us ever since in the Western psyche by a guy named Martin Luther and from subsequent thinkers. And Martin Luther did a lot of great things. There's a lot of foundational truths that we stand on because of some corrections that Martin Luther brought to the church. The importance of grace and uh, the importance of faith. Uh, the importance of authority, uh, that authority doesn't come from tradition or institutions, but from, uh, but from God himself, from his, his revealed word, the Bible. So some great stuff. But Martin Luther had an inherent understanding of humanity that we talked about last week. And let me share a quote with you from Martin Luther. I am the ripe, I'll wait for you to see it here. One more slide. I am the ripe beep. I asked my wife if I should actually say it. She said, no, that would be offense. So, I'm, uh, so also is the world a wide beep hole. Then shall we soon part. Let that quote sink in for a second. This is the guy who the whole Protestant arm of church tradition kind of grew out from. This inherent understand or this inherent belief that we are beep. In fact, Martin Luther referred to himself multiple times as dung. You find it in a bunch of his writings. I'm nothing but dung. And he's credited with saying that we are snow-covered dung. We are dung, and because of Jesus, he covers us, and we're snow-covered dung. And so, there was this idea in the Reformation that God, that Jesus came to change God's mind about us. That we're a piece of dung. Worthless. But because of what Jesus did, God looks at us and sees Jesus and now we've actually have some intrinsic value, not because of us, but because of Jesus. So that's some of the thinking behind some of Martin Luther's statements. But I believe that Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humanity, that Jesus came to change humanity's mind about God. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humanity. 
Jesus came to change humanity's mind about God. That I do not believe that you are snow-covered dung. If anything, we are dung-covered gold. Do you see the difference? You are not snow-covered dung, you are dung-covered gold. And what I mean by that is there is an intrinsic value that you were created in the image of God, that God loves you and that he's crazy about you, but the truth is that we got some crap on us. That we've been living out of alignment, that we have not chosen to remain in the vine. And in fact, if you go back to the word prune, another part of that word, the way it's been translated actually more often is the word clean. That Jesus comes, that God comes and he cleans us up. He, he removes the crap in our lives that's on us. That he loves us, that he wasn't willing for us to stay the same. That Jesus comes to find the gold in every one of us. So we need to correct the problem. And we need to restore an image of God that reflects God revealed in Jesus. If you go back to Exodus 20, uh, the Ten Commandments, you'll, you'll, you'll read this commandment. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven on earth beneath or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Jews were not allowed to have images. Why were Jews not allowed to have images? Because as soon as humans try to etch an image of God into stone or mold him with precious metals, it becomes a lie. How can the finite define the infinite? As soon as humans create an image of what they think God is like, they have begin to worship that image and all of a sudden they're wor worshiping an idol, not God himself. Do you see what happens? And so God implemented this commandment to the Israelites, don't make an image in the form of anything. Because I know you're going to put restrictions and define, and define me in a way that I do not want to define myself. And as you begin to worship that thing, and here's the principle, you become what you behold. You will be formed into that which you worship. So there's a problem. God needs to restore his image. God is revealing himself through the biblical narrative. So what does God do? God gives us his own icon. God gives us his own image. In Hebrews 1 verse 3 it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the, what does it say? exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I want us all to say that together. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I don't know if you have a practice of memorizing scripture, but I encourage you to memorize Hebrews 1 verse 3. Because Jesus shows us what God is really like. He gives us his image so that we can worship that image and be made into the likeness of Jesus. Because you become what you behold. You are formed into that which you worship. 
If you worship an angry, terrorizing God, guess what? You become an angry, terrorizing person. If we look at those who claim to follow Jesus, do we see people that are increasingly kind, merciful, and loving, or do we see those that are becoming increasingly angry? But if we worship the true God revealed in Jesus, it changes us to be more Christ-like. And we talked about this last week. We're created to be icons, and and this is the word that the the Greek refers to when when it talks about being made in the image of God, being made in the icon of God. God created us to reflect who he is to the world, but we've done that in a distorted, broken way. And so he sends his perfect image in Jesus, and as we worship Jesus, we actually get made into his likeness. And you know what Jesus was like. He was gracious. He was kind. He was loving. And no, he wasn't afraid to stand up to sin and injustice. He, wasn't, he didn't get walked over, but the enemy that Jesus was against were the rulers and principalities of the spiritual realm, not people. The kindness of God is not random. He does not go out of his way to be kind. He does not leave his normal way of operating to randomly do something kind. God is not Jekyll and Hyde. God does not have a personality, multiple personality disorder. The cross of Jesus was not a random act of kindness. The cross of Jesus wasn't a random act of kindness. The cross of Jesus was the full revelation of who God is. And people didn't always know that, and that's why the cross became so scandalous. That's why Jews, the Israelites, who were hell-bent on making sure that they conquered their physical enemies, missed the point. They found the cross offensive. They found the idea of Jesus being the Messiah offensive because God wouldn't sacrifice himself. God wouldn't be so merciful and gracious. Or would he? I believe that when we understand the problem that we need to see God in the right way, which is defined by his revelation in Jesus, then different results start to happen. Romans 2 verse 4 says this. Don't you see? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his, what kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Or as it says in the New International Version, can't you see that his kindness leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Not the terror of God. Not God's disgust with you. But his love for you, his patience to make sure that he can wipe off all the dung that's on top of you to restore you to your created purpose and beauty. It says in Titus 3, verse 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating each other. You can see the flesh, the sarks coming out here and But when God our Savior revealed his what? 
his anger, his judgment, his disappointment, his disgust with you. What does Paul say? When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love. He saved us. Again, not because of the righteous thing we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins. He washed away. Giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. This is the scandal of the gospel of the good news. Jesus came and completely ruined what what everybody assumed God was like. That God in his kindness, in his love, in his mercy came and washed away the dung that was on us so that we could experience new life and new birth through the Holy Spirit. That's good news. But for those who can grasp the good news, it gives the opportunity for personal transformation. For those who can make the jump and actually believe that God is like Jesus, and that God has always been like Jesus. As Brian Zahn says, we haven't always known that, but because of it, he came and because Jesus came and uh, God came in the image of Jesus, now we do. We haven't always known that, but now we do. That's the revelation of Jesus. That's the good news. If you believe in the intrinsic value of every human and worship a kind God, I believe you will become more kind more loving, more merciful. And if Jesus' followers would model that to the world around us, it would lead people to repentance. I think people would look at us and see that we were created to live in sync with God, that the image of God fully lived out in humanity looks like this. And the more kind we are, the more merciful we are, the more Christ-like we are, I think people would look at us and look, it would be like looking at a mirror of potential. And we could point people to Jesus and say, this is what God is like. Be transformed. Worship him. Give your life to him. And it says in Romans 12, 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Kindness is your secret weapon. It disarms people. Have you ever, like, been in a fight with somebody, and instead of, like, punching you back, and it might, I might mean physically, but I could also mean figuratively, they responded not by punching you back, but by being kind. Doesn't that just make you feel terrible? Can anybody, can I testify to this? Like when I'm in an argument with my wife and she responds by just being kind to me, it's like, oh, I just wanted you to punch me back. Sorry, I don't physically punch my wife. <laughs> let's, be, let's be clear about that. Figuratively. Kindness is like heaping burning coals on somebody's head. When your enemy comes at you, Feed them. If he's thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will fight back. In doing this, you will not perpetuate the problem 
of hatred and anger and violence that our world knows so well, but you will actually bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and people will begin to see what God is really like. Like flaming forests desperate for rain, our world is desperate for kindness. If you want to disarm a challenging relationship in your life, kindness. If you want to turn your marriage around, kindness. If you want to see change take place in someone else and you're tired of trying to control them because that's exhausting, allow the kindness of God to spill out of you and you'll see the situation change. So identify the problem of how you see God. Because if you're worshiping an angry, terrorizing God, don't be surprised that that starts to be reflective in how you treat others. Look at the right image. Worship God revealed in Jesus. What does it mean to worship? Reflect on him, pray to him, listen to him, thank him, praise him, commune with him. This is the whole idea of the, the journaling and spending time with God every day that we, we encouraged Sun West to do throughout the summer. Allow the spirit of God to soak into who you are. Let the kindness of God towards you rock you to the core to the point that it becomes your default action to those around you. Move from kindness being a random act to being your new normal. And I believe it's possible. I believe that when we understand that God is kind, in 1 John it says that God is love, that we understand the essence of God revealed in Jesus and we spend our lives following him and worshiping him, we will become increasingly kind. And it goes from just being a random act of kindness to the new normal in the way that we live. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we, the band leads us in worship. And the band is going to lead us in a song uh, that describes this what Martin Luther would call reckless love. Like, that can't be God. God hates you. Sorry, I, Martin Luther was great, but I just disagree with him fundamentally on that point. That God's love towards you is reckless. And that recklessness is seen most profoundly in Jesus, where we see a God that would rather die than kill his enemies. Jesus reveals a God that would rather die than kill his enemies. And that type of kindness should lead us to repentance. If you're someone who's been separated from the vine and you've experienced that withering and that death, Jesus invites you to abide with him to let the kindness of God wreck you, to let it melt you. So let me pray, and, and as we worship, if, if you're in that space, if you're in that place where, where you've recognized that hey, my image of God has actually been off, repent of that. Turn from that. Let the kindness of the Lord lead you to repentance. Allow His Spirit to come in as you abide with him to transform you from the inside out. So God, we thank you that you that you came. That you revealed what you were like. And Lord, we just declare this morning that Jesus came not to 
didn't come to, to convince you that we're lovable, but he came to reveal you as a loving God. Jesus did not come to save us from you, but to reveal you to us as Savior. Lord, I pray that the scandal of your love, the scandal of your kindness would lead us to repentance. Lord, that we would recognize both that we have dung all over us, but also that we are intrinsically valued by you. And Spirit, we just pray that you would come and wash us clean, that you would clean us up, that you would prune us, that you would make us more fruitful so that when life squeezes us, your character, your essence would actually come out of us. So God, we just repent of the ways that we have walked out of step with you. And we invite you to come now, even as we worship, to, to be our Lord, to be our Savior, to be our King. Lord, we want to orient our lives around you. Let you be the vine and we will be the branch. You are our source of life. So we choose to abide in you. In Jesus' name. Does, uh, does repenting because you're afraid of God work? Sure. Uh, I think it can change your, you can change your behavior based on fear, living in fear. But I don't believe that'll transform you. How many, I'm just gonna invite you to close your eyes for a second. Um, I'm just curious. I, I, I would like to know how many of you kind of grew up with a kind of understanding of God as a, uh, you know, terrorizing, angry figure. Just put up your hand if that was kind of your default understanding of God growing up. That God's angry. His predisposition is kind of against you. And Jesus came to change God's mind about you. Does that resonate with anyone? Thank you. Wait, you put your hands down. What if the good news, what if the good news about God is even better than we dreamed? What if God doesn't just put up with us, but God is actually crazy in love with us? And that kindness leads us to repentance. That when we actually start to grasp the beauty and kindness and mercy and goodness of God, that it changes us. Is there anything to be afraid of? Well, absolutely. As, the, as Jesus talks about in John 15, when the, the branch is separated from the vine, that there are devastating consequences for not connecting yourself to the life source. And the whole reason Jesus came and was, died and resurrected his game was to graft you into the vine. I mean, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't eat, you didn't sleep, you didn't drink water, you should be afraid because you are actually removing yourself from that which is gonna help bring life to your body. So I do believe that there's a place for concern. There's, a, there's an invitation 
to move from fear to celebration. But we're not running from God. We're actually running from the consequences of living a life without God, running to him who is merciful, kind, loving, and invites us into a relationship with him to be changed today and forever. That is good news. Can I get an amen to that? That's good news. I'm going to invite our prayer teams forward. Um, if you'd like prayer for anything, uh, we, we would love for you to come forward. We'd love to pray for you. Um, and I would encourage you, if you're one of those folks that kind of grew up with this image of God that does not look like Jesus, because let's be clear, there's a way to read the Bible that portrays God as, as, as angry. But the scandal is that Jesus actually fully revealed God. And so I would invite you to actually spend time in the Gospels. Spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looking at what Jesus was like and try not to separate God from Jesus and recognize that God is Jesus with flesh on. And when you begin to do that, it changes everything. And now you begin repenting not out of fear but based off of the beauty and love of God and your desire not to live life apart from Him. So again, Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that in you is life. As your word says, uh, Jesus, you came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I came so that you could have life in all of its fullness. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So God, in you there is life, and we turn from everything that does not align with you. We repent of our sinfulness. We repent of the dung that we've covered ourselves with because of our own choices to live apart from you, God. And we come back to the vine and we say, would you forgive us? Would you graft us in to be in relationship and communion with you and transform us from the inside out? Lord, I pray for those that grew up that have a default understanding of you being terrifying and angry. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would begin to see you as we see Jesus. That we would let that image transform the way we see you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Thanks for coming. Next week we finish up our series uh, and we'll talk about the last fruit, which is self-control.